So this is a conversation with writer and all-around brilliant person, Casi da Costa, on race, class, gender, and sexuality as it relates to celebrity. This was recorded prior to the brutal police murder of George Floyd, and I think it explores many of the themes that are coming up now in this movement with brands sort of trying to timidly offer support, but being afraid of saying anything that is too critical of the systems of racism and capitalism upon which America was founded. Um, Celebrities from a variety of backgrounds, again, trying to sort of thread the needle between saying something and saying nothing without fundamentally disrupting um, the systems of domination and oppression that they currently find themselves at the top of. There are multiple different oppressions of racism, capitalism, sexism, heteropatriarchy, many different ways that who we are and the voices that we want to have uh, are oppressed and violated daily. And this conversation is really complicated, um, very full of, I think, intense honesty about what it means to disrupt all those systems and perhaps the necessity of having to disrupt all of them, that without destroying racism, you can't destroy capitalism. Without destroying capitalism, you can't destroy sexism. Without destroying sexism, you can't destroy uh, heteropatriarchy. So again, this was recorded before George Floyd's murder, but I think a lot of these threads and tensions are the ones um, that are being protested against in various forms in this movement. Hopefully we can figure out a way to destroy all these oppressions and build a beautiful new world. If you like this conversation, we have a whole back catalog of fascinating discussions with authors, writers, and activists from all over the world. That's at the Arts of Travel podcast, and our website hosts programs, platforms, and interviews that cover many of these topics as well. Here's our conversation with Cassie da Costa. I hope you enjoy. writer for the daily beast and a commissioning editor for another gaze another gaze is a feminist and queer film journal um that's really focusing on ideas of feminism and queerness that are um more left and expansive sort of taking kind of the basis of a lot of academic and theoretical work and actually applying it to film so uh sort of the uh overarching uh, tension in our conversation uh, is going to be based around celebrity. Um, Something I uh, spoke about, I interviewed Naomi Burden, who's the founder of this uh, fledgling network called Means TV, where they've they've billed themselves as the Netflix for the left. The tension in that conversation um, that we eventually arrived to that we'll start with here is I asked her, well, is celebrity or or can media itself even be in the forms we have it now progressive or leftist? Because 
Just like with wealth, where there's the 1% and the 99%, we see that in fame as well, uh, where there are all these hidden violences and hidden structures that go into sort of taking the fame surplus and giving it to a very small group of people. So to frame our conversation, let's start there. What have your thoughts been, particularly in this moment of crisis, of if celebrity itself can be um, leftist or will it always remain a capitalist concept? Yeah, I think when we speak specifically about celebrity, as you've put it, and not about artistic talent um, or even just being an entertainer, I think the celebrity side of it is was fundamentally born of capitalism, whereas there's a historical notion of, say, notoriety or fame that was more based in what you meant to a community um, and not necessarily how much you were marketed to that community in a kind of corporate model. So I think that what the thing that celebrity is and has become, it, it can only exist in this capitalist system as far as I understand it. Um, and without that, if you replace it, if you change it, then people's relationships to people who are producing work or who are workers, because I think a lot of, some of the people we think of as celebrities like Oprah or um, Kylie Jenner are capitalists themselves. And then others are actually workers, even though they're, they're rich, um, they're working for, for wages. Um, so I think if you can transform the system under which these people are actually um, creating work, um, if they actually own the means of production, say, if actors actually um, had uh, ownership in production as well as the directors and the writers and the crew members all together versus producers and benefactors, um, then I think you would change I think you would also necessarily change, uh, you know, viewers' relationships to those people. Um, and then if you look at other industries, that would have to change as well to change how fame is produced or how someone gains notoriety in a community. And then who gets to be known in a community would also change, right? It wouldn't just be people who had these talents um, that we think of as like our certain kinds of artistic talents that produce fame or certain kinds of business acumen that produce fame. Um, I think everything would kind of shift and change. Um, I was thinking like, you know, this isn't a perfect example. It's, it's a kind of state authoritarian communism. But if you look at Cuba and the way that say athletes are seen in the country, it's less about this kind of Nike-fied idea of, of fame and ability and it's more about um, serving a role in society is kind of uplifting the community and you know doctors really serve that role in Cuba and they're really proud of their education system and they travel around the world um, serving communities in need so you know I think there are ways that we can reimagine what it means to be admired kind of widely in your community but right now it's based on it's often based on really cynical ideas and senses of who has value as a human being in it. And so I totally hear you when you say like it, it's celebrity um, is really tied up in capitalism. And uh, very recently, because of the COVID-19 coronavirus panic, there was a, sort of a, a cultural flashpoint where the contradiction broke through the mainstream. And that was Gal Gadot's 
uh, disastrous Imagine video. And um, I'm, I'm wondering for um, this strange time where we're entering almost like fascist economics, where Trump is and, and other uh, white supremacist Republicans are sort of demanding that uh, uh, a labor workforce that will include a lot of um, white people, but uh, disproportionately poverty has affected black and brown people more because we live in a system of racialized capitalism, um, are saying, go to work and die. Go to your delivery job and die. Go to, you know, your whatever these uh, gig economies uh, that we've set up to direct billions to a small select few. Go do those and die so we can stay in our mansions and bunkers and uh, our stock portfolios won't be hurt. And so that's the time we live in. And so Gal Gadot has an idea where she says, I know from my bunker, I'll call all these other celebrities from their bunkers and we'll do this Imagine video. And I've sort of jokingly discussed it in this question, but why do you think this um, this seduction that we normally have with beauty and fame fell so flat on its face uh, in this moment of really stark and really dangerous contradictions of capitalism in the time of COVID-19? I think this is probably a subliminal thing. People don't really think of Gal Gadot as, as Israeli, but it, it's interesting to think of, of someone who comes from um, a country in which there's such extreme, um, very difficult uh, to ignore um, oppression, though, you know, obviously you can be indoctrinated to believe differently about it, um, uh, to then sort of present this video to the American public um, and to also be seen as this kind of uh, perfect female figure who's supposed to represent um, gender empowerment um, to to the masses through her Wonder Woman ca casting. I think she's already this kind of um, deeply ironic but very fitting to our age um, figure. Um, not to speak of her personally, just to speak of what she represents and in the roles that she chooses and, and in, in her public facing actions as a celebrity. Um, but yeah, the, I think the video, the reaction to the video, even if you know nothing about Israeli occupation, um, it it's very clearly um, this kind of cloying earnestness of the rich, um, of the upper middle classes of um, saying, oh, you know, I really wanna help. I really just wanna confer my benevolence and my goodness onto the struggling hordes. Um, a kind of a, a bit of a let them eat cake moment um, of not actual malice, um, but ignorance, which is which is more infuriating, I think, as, at a time like this. Um, and also, the I think it kind of also, for a lot of people, it was the way it's the ways in which celebrities have have really profited off of social media and these in these various ways, whether literally profiting or um, using it as their own kind of personal PR, no longer do they have to convince um, a magazine writer to fall in love with them. They can just directly kind of broadcast themselves um, to public adornment. And at a time like this where people are losing their jobs, um, 
en masse where people's parents and, and grandparents are dying, where, where younger people are dying, where they're being lied to um, by people in power in, in very obvious, very flagrant ways. Um, when it's become clear that there are senators who have done insider trading, um, you know, months before any of the public were informed about the virus, you have uh, people with a lot of money who have access to tests whenever they want them decide that their offering is going to be um, a pretty uh, horrific rendition of uh, a later year's John Lennon song. I think it's, it was kind of, um, I always say everything now feels like it's out of Armando Iannucci, but this kind of cruel irony, this kind of cruel comedy um, in which the people in power seem more stupid than ever, but they're still in power they're, and they're getting more of it. So I think that's, it was finally a way in which the things that people who are very politically focused and who are very informed about the news, about history, about politics. It was, it was finally a translation of the things that make us angry into the mainstream, into the popular sphere. So, uh, at least for me anyways, you know, Armando Iannucci is interesting to mention uh, simply because I think he still believes in the political process. For all his criticisms, he, he's never really gone into sort of a surrealism. That's why I stopped watching Veep, because, it, you know, it, it's, it's very clear he still believes um, in these processes. He doesn't offer an alternative. Um, I think that's the thing, though, that makes them feel so eerie in the moment, is that his work, because it believes in itself, it actually is more grotesque. In a way, it's it's kind of successful because it, it, it so much resembles the real thing, right? Because he believes mm. that these processes should actually work. But you can kind of see it. With Veep, it got... For me, it got unwatchable because it felt very, it felt almost not satirical in any way. As, as you're saying, it wasn't surreal. It was very close to the real. Um, but I think once you see that kind of, the connection to the things that are actually happening to us, then you can start to see the show for what it is if you, if you were once an uncritical watcher or viewer of that show. So uh, your review of The Assistant, I think, is a really interesting piece of writing. So I'm going to quote from it here. Uh, and it, this is in particular interesting because it talks about your own background. You were uh, a Yale graduate. So um, for this quote, um, then maybe I'll leave that to you to sort of explain how you came to include the personal in your own understanding of the film rather than um, guessing as, as I did here. Um, so the, the, the quote goes, Still, I was only there for a summer. I told myself and even felt lucky to be entrusted with filling in for the assistants when they took time off. The assistant masters the power dynamics that are central to the various abuses withstood in these kinds of you-should-feel-lucky-to-be-here workplaces. You are special yet disposable. In one, in one moment, you're a genius on the path to professional stardom, and in the next, you're an ungrateful embarrassment. To cope or make sense of your investments of time and energy, you hold on to instances of praise as proof that the mistreatment is merely a test, a necessary obstacle on the way to greatness, end quote. So for, for you, maybe this is the, um, could you center some of the ugliness that, that goes into the, the, the backstage? We don't see to quote sociologist Irving Goffman. We always see the front stage, but we, we of, of the actors, of the Gal Gadot, 
but we rarely see the backstage, the assistant grimacing and wanting to vomit, you know, maybe while she holds the phone recording the Imagine uh, video. Could you talk a bit about this and, and as well as why you decided to include your own background in writing this review of the film, The Assistant? The Assistant in the background. I think it's, I mean, before I said that a lot of, you know, a lot of who we think of celebrities, uh, they're actually workers. But then, of course, um, a lot of them are also actually employers themselves or they're contracting work um, in having assistants and having a, a makeup team. Um, so, yes, there there's this kind of... Um, prestige system that's that's replicated in, in multiple multiple spheres now and and the primary place that it, it developed was um in the university system um which originally only elites had access to in the first place um but the second that it became the case that you could earn it a kind of education um and kind of rise up um to a place of status that it was that working wasn't was no longer this um, embarrassing thing to have to do. Um, you have these kinds of tiers, and the ways that you the the ruling classes kept them in place is by trying to obscure to certain parties um, that they exist um, or that there's anything wrong with them. And so, for me, it was important to contextualize the assistant in my own experience because I felt that the movie was very pointed in being about a young woman who actually had options, actually had a way out of out of her situation, um, working in this fictionalized version of, of Harvey Weinstein's office. Um, but she's constantly calculating um, whether she should she should have a moral backbone, and I think one thing that I experience is just, it's an increasing feeling that it's ridiculous um, to stand for anything unequivocally, um, uh, that you always have to hedge, that you're always going to have to make um, compromises and calculations. Um, uh, and and that, that that in and of itself is supposed to be a noble thing. That's supposed to be maturity. That's supposed to be cleverness, um, brilliance. And if you're in the pursuit of something called or labeled brilliant or intelligent or talented or prestige prestigious, um, without having your own um, sense of, of what's right, um, of what you're fighting for, who you're fighting with, then you can be convinced um, to be party to anything, I think. Um, and so I think it was for me to make that claim, I needed to point out where it was coming from, which was coming from my own experience. And, and going to a school um, like Yale, when you don't come from the background that it's trying to produce um, or that it affirms, um, you, know, I, I, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family. I, I wasn't poor um, or working class by any means, but you know, I went to public school uh, I went into a lot of student debt in order to go to college, um, and I'm still in it. And so, at, you know, the stakes of college for me were, do I get to be a person in the world or <laughs> or not? And I think for a lot of my peers in school who maybe went to these private schools where they were told um, that they were special from the start um, or, you know, who grew up 
in wealthy families and were not worried about costs, were not worried about what they were going to do next, already had a certain level of connections, already had um, what they believed to be their inherent talent constantly confirmed to them. Um, the stakes, you know, the stakes were very different. And so because you're supposed to be assimilating, because you're supposed to be integrating into this group, you have to kind of spin a yarn for yourself. Um, and your bosses uh, often participate in it. Um, I think there's a, there's a kind of thing of, of oft sometimes hiring people who seem hungrier. <laughs> Um, and whether that's coming from a literal fear of hunger, literal hunger, um, or if it's coming from some kind of weird ingrained Ivy League competitiveness, um, either way, they, they'll try to take advantage of it. Going to a school like Yale, I think a lot of people who go there and are critical of it, um, you're caught in this weird place of being like, well, I got to go there and they're, it's undoubtedly you know, well-resourced school where you get access um, to, to documents, to tools um, that you wouldn't get in most other places. Um, but at a, at a cost, um, both monetary um, and oftentimes moral cost. And if you're, if you're a student there who wants to fight against it, um, who uh, isn't going to play into the game in one way or another, um, you're you're certainly going to be punished for it. I think it's important to talk out loud about that because I, I hear a lot of people who I admire say that they wish they could have gone to a school like that. And I think, no, like, <laughs> it's good that you didn't. It's good that you didn't go into debt to go to get to achieve this level of prestige. And it doesn't mean um, anything, um, I think, to achieve it other than that you were ambitious or determined or stubborn enough um, to do it. It doesn't inherently um, confer goodness or smartness onto anyone. And I think it, in talking about the assistant, it's, it was important to point out that these jobs um, are, are you know, systemically cruel in many ways and abusive. Um, but when you come from a certain class level, um, when you're churned through a certain kind of you know, Ivy League or Ivy League adjacent education. I think in the movie she went to Northwestern. Um, I think we, we still have some kind of responsibility to, to reckon with why um, we're continuing to consent to certain parts of uh, the system, to the parts that are um, made to seem more benevolent to us. Um, I, think I think most of us are smarter than that and we know what we're doing. Um, but it's, it's tough because it also doesn't mean that if you experience abuse that it's no longer valid because you've made other compromises. So I, for me, it was just about trying to talk about, find a way to talk about that difficult area, um, where, yeah, it, 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 it has a rippling effect where, there are going to be workers around you who are experiencing more extreme forms of abuse that are dependent on your, your complacency, dependent on your desire to be loved by your boss, um, to get a leg up in the company. And so how far will you take it? Who will you betray um, to continue to, to kind of receive, um, you know, the, the approval and the benefit of being associated with, with certain people, with the ruling class. One of the, the most tense but interesting interviews I had, I interviewed 
um, Tony Lynn and uh, uh, a very prominent Time magazine writer, Karen K. Ho, and uh, they uh, and I really disagreed on the figure of Ellen K. Powell uh, because Ellen K. Powell for them represented, you know, this this really pioneering force of this uh, Asian American woman who was trying to force her way into one of the into one of the most elite sections of capital, venture capitalism, and I think it's called Kleinfeld Perkins, and uh, where we really had a, a big disagreement, though we, we were polite about it, um, was I said, look, I don't think certain institutions can ever be progressive, no matter how diverse you make them. Um, the scholar Jody Malamed and Aihua Ong uh, in this vein of, of neoliberal multiculturalism and some of the criticisms we'll talk about later for black billionaires uh, really reinforces for me that certain things, doesn't matter how diverse they are, they're just toxic institutions. Um, and when, when I look at, you know, this, this movie, when I look at the culture of cruelty that goes on in Wall Street, um, where they, they, they do literally work you to death, not because they need to, but because they're trying to break you in a lot of ways, to make you completely loyal to that institution. When we look at, you know, um, Veep we were just talking about, but the real-life equivalent would probably be someone like Amy Klobuchar, who physically and verbally abuses her staff, and then you get these bizarre Stockholm Syndrome quotes when they get interviewed of, ha-ha, it's fun, ha-ha, and then, like, in subtext, off-stage, off, uh, Amy was pointing a gun. You know, it's... um. Is there something that people don't understand when they when they don't go into uh, media, when they don't go into Yale, when they don't go into these institutions about how cruelty is the point? And for non-white people, has this been something that, as we're, again, in this weird moment of collapse with COVID-19 and capitalism, are more people who aren't white talking about what I framed and scholars have framed as neoliberal multiculturalism as something that um, really needs to be reckoned with. It's interesting because I think for me particularly, and I've written about this in other pieces as well, you know, my family's not African-American. Um, my dad grew up in the UK and is, is from West Africa. My mom is, was born and raised in Zambia. So we moved here when I was, a, you know, a very young child. Um, and so we came from a, particularly privileged position of, of, you know, my dad had to come here and because he studied medicine in Zambia and then did his PhD in London, he had to come to the U.S. and do a residency again, um, as they make you do if you, if you don't have a Western world medical degree. Um, and so, you know, there were, there was this kind of, we had th these multiple experiences in the US as black people who are coming from outside, that's quite unusual. Um, in that usually um, when, when black people are, are easily able to immigrate here, it's because they already have quite a lot of money, but because of the way things work for my dad, we, you know, had to move into like a two bedroom apartment, you know, three kids and in Las Vegas. And, you know, he was working, you know, long shifts at a hospital as a resident for the second time in his life. Um, and then, you know, once that was over, we were able to kind of assume this kind of comfortable middle class um, position living in different neighborhoods that were pretty harshly segregated um, in the South. 
um, in North Carolina and in Virginia, and then in Pennsylvania where I went to high school, um, where it was a lot more white in the suburb that we lived in outside of Philadelphia. So from that place, I think, and then going into Yale, I've, I've had a, an interesting perspective on kind of the, the workings of neoliberalism um, in multiple different spaces. And because my family, like as a family unit, unit, we moved so much, so we never really became integrated into one community. And so we were always kind of observers. Um, and I, when I finally was kind of integrated into certain communities, I was supposed to kind of, I was seen as this kind of respectable black figure person who could achieve a certain level um, could achieve a kind of upper middle class or upper class status if I just kind of worked hard enough and played my cards right. And I think a lot of that comes from the way I speak, which isn't put on. It's not, um, it's just because I'm, I'm not from this country. So you usually develop a kind of neutral accent when you learn an, a new accent and you don't live in one community that has a very particular way of speaking. So yeah, it's interesting because it's almost like black people who who people think are white, um, and they'll be in a group of white people, and then those white people will start saying things about black people, <laughs> and that person will be like, "Oh my god, this is what they're saying about us when they think we're not here." And it, I felt that kind of that way in terms of um, the sort of neoliberal prestige success train when people think, when people assume you're of this world, that you come from it, that you're not assimilating, but you already belong there for whatever reasons, for whatever assumptions that they make, um, you start to see things that I think sometimes other people who are, who, you know, are also black or who might otherwise share certain things with you, maybe might, be more optimistic about. And I think that for me, a huge thing that has been kind of representation politics and what you're saying with Ellen K. Powell, like these irredeemable institutions, like what's the point um, of becoming um, the first, you know, investment banker at this firm? Or I think it's, it's a very difficult thing because it feels like in the second that racialized people um, or um, racialized poor people or poor people who are white get to achieve something then all of a sudden it's something that no one is supposed to achieve because it's wrong we can kind of look at that in terms of like environmental stuff and, and often how um, certain communities are demonized for uh, e eating certain kinds of foods and driving certain kinds of cars when actually um, you know the degradation is, is systemic it's, it's not about individual acts, actions necessarily. Um, and so it's a difficult thing to talk about because if you don't have, and I think it's very easy to, to, to grow up in this country and in the country that I'm currently in, that you're not currently in right now, to grow up in the US and to feel, um, to have class obscured um, and to not have an understanding um, of class struggle of difference, um, not just racial difference kind of flatly, but in, in terms of how racial difference um, plays out at different class levels. Um, 
if you don't have that understanding, if you don't have that context, if you don't have that history, the solution could seem to you to be to strive hard enough. Um, or if you grew up middle class, if you grew up rich and black, for instance, to say, well, um, I just need to create these opportunities for everyone else who looks like me, um, rather than to think that fundamentally the thing that you've benefited off is, is, um, is cruel, is harsh, is broken. And the fact that you ma ma managed to make it work for you, um, is that actually something that you have to, to, to examine yourself? I think sometimes these conversations about, for instance, privilege have obscured the fact that um, a lot of black people benefit from the oppression of other black people. So this tension within um, black and uh, within the black community of America is something I think you've articulated really well. And recently, in your most recent article for The Daily Beast, you wrote about the new Octavia Spencer, LeBron James-produced movie, Madam C.J. Walker, which is about uh, an early black entrepreneur during Jim Crow America. Um, you had this to say, and if you could give us a bit of uh, background on the film uh, for the question, but the quote from the article that I wanted to pull out is, the myth that the flourishing of black business businesses will help all black people is one that has worked on large swaths of black communities in the U.S. who idolize millionaire and billionaire black entrepreneurs like Diddy, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Rihanna, and Oprah. Self-made, the brand of Madam C.J. Walker, that's my ellipses, uh, operates on a long-established cliche about black ownership and black female empowerment that refuses to examine blackness outside of a bourgeois heteronormative lens. So could you continue uh, your line of criticism and just to center this in our contemporary era when many of the black fans of Kevin Durant are going to have to be forced to work, get sick, be hospitalized, and some of them will die? How historically um, ha has this been falling apart for a while, and how is it becoming very pronounced in our moment of black billionaires, I'm assuming, if Beyonce's songs are true, continuing to fuck in limousines while many black people are, are going to die in this moment of crisis? Self-made, inspired by the story of Madam C.J. Walker, is a very kind of fictionalized account of the life of this real woman who um, was said to be the first self-made black woman millionaire in the U.S., or I would assume anywhere, um, but actually technically wasn't a millionaire, though with inflation today she would have, you know, by the time of her death, um, had the equivalent of over uh, almost nine million dollars. Um, so she was certainly rich um, and died rich, um, but you know, was a working class washerwoman um, who became an entrepreneur um, because she was desperate to get out of that um, very manually sort of physically, I'll use a, a term that Jasbir Puar has, has developed, um, debilitating a job. Um, so it's a common story that, you know, in the article, I say a lot large swaths of black Black communities have bought into this idea, not because these people are stupid or because um, they're morally depraved. That's not what I mean to say. Um, but like anyone else, um, a lot of Black people um, have seen firsthand, if not experienced firsthand, um, extreme hardship um, and cruelty. 
um, at the hands of, of being disenfranchised, of not having resources, of being poor. And um, the easy, the short term, not necessarily easy, because it, it is a kind of hard work to get from where Madam C.J. Walker began to where she ended up. Um, but it is more, it is simpler. It, it's, it's, an, it's an easier narrative um, to, to invest um, goodness and power in, in becoming personally rich and then probably becoming a philanthropist like Madam C.J. Walker became. Um, and I think in certain black communities and not all certainly, um, there, there's an emphasis on that kind of power on the kind of power that that Oprah's and Beyonce's have, um, because we already believe as a society that um, justice has to be conferred by elites. So as long as they're black elites um, who represent the culture coming from the streets, um, it seems to be okay. Um, and it takes a kind of specifically with the Madam C.J. Walker series. I thought, you know, unfortunately, it. it just was quite incompetent as, as, a, as a series in terms of examining anything about this person beyond the cliches of um, bootstraps kind of striving and um, even the self-made title. Um, you know, that's already a, a warning and a signal about what the show is. Um, it completely obscures how um, capital is produced and how someone like Madam C.J. Walker was able to, in a very unlikely sense, get out of her circumstances, um, which was to find a very, um, to find the one group of people she could exploit as a black woman, which was other black women who were more desperate than she was. Um, and we see this again and again. And, and I think it's difficult to talk in, on, in these terms because when I say desperate, I don't, <laughs> I don't mean it as this kind of condescending, um, shameful term, but that um, under a system of capitalism, we all, any of us who are not benefiting off of it as members of the ruling class are, could be, be positioned as desperate at, at any moment, um, desperate to survive, desperate to escape, um, desperate to care for each other, um, kind of clawing against this, um, you know, torturous force um, that, that, kind, that in many ways seeks to own us um, and to own what we produce. Um, and so I think it's hard for people to, um, to see other people, people who look like them, people who have experienced what they've experienced potentially, though that's not necessarily the case in, with Beyonce, um, who grew up, you know, in a, in a decently well-off family. Um, but if you look at someone like Oprah, um, she's come from where a lot of the women who admire her has come from. She's come from extremely difficult circumstances um, and abuse um, and poverty. And so it's hard to believe that someone like that, and even for the, that person, even for an Oprah, it's probably hard for her to believe that what she's effectively doing um, is convincing um, poor and working class people to hand over um, their wages so that she can continue to be, to become more rich, um, to tell them things that they wanna hear um, so that they 
um, will pledge their loyalty to her. And this is kind of what Madame C.J. Walker did. She created this miracle horror, which in effect worked in many ways. It was, it was a good product that um, helped people kind of restore strength and vitality to their hair. Um, but it, you know, honestly, it was something that anyone could have made in their kitchen with a little bit of determination and some good instructions. And so, you know, because Madame C.J. Walker, um, you know, had this desperation in the face of capitalism, of racism, um, she felt the need to monetize, to capitalize off of her knowledge that she um, had gained through experience, experiment, through relationships, through community for free, um, to sell it to other people rather than to offer it to them and to share it with her community. And because that was the model that that she learned that she knew as, as the only way um, that she could escape her circumstances. I think now um, it's our it's it's an obligation um, to demand more of each other um, than continuing to exploit each other, um, and then to kind of throw you know hundred dollar bills back down below um, when we get the chance. Uh, but it, it's a difficult thing to dismantle because. The alternative um, seems a lot less glamorous. The alternative doesn't have these, this, these huge marketing arms behind it. Um, you know, collective, autonomous, anarchist, communist community. For a lot of people, that represents just a different kind of poverty. And so you have to kind of, you have to change those perceptions, I think, to even begin these conversations and communities. Later on in the article, you have this to say about uh, sundial brands. Um, more, and there are several ellipses. Um, this was taken from a black quote. Uh, more recently, black hair care line sundial brands released a signature line dedicated to her, Madam C.J. Walker. Today, while more and more black entrepreneurs are making money off of broke and precarious black people looking for a trustworthy leave-in conditioner, Economic independence certainly hasn't spread to workers around the world, not least to the ones tasked with making and packaging hair products. More fitting to our virus-stricken pandemonium might instead be worker-made, the communities that inspired Madam C.J. Walker. So this quote, um, for women, you could compare this to a Beyonce versus, let's say, a Cardi B, where B Beyonce has millions of dollars that go into her appearance, or at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, that go into what she wears, the brands she stands, uh, how she keeps her appearance in place with fitness regimens, eating regimens, uh, and so on. Cardi B openly just sort of uh, is not on, you know, the very strict sort of eating regimen of, of someone like a Beyonce. And uh, I'm wondering for, for bodies, when you look at a, a movie like Madam C.J. Walker, are these tensions uh, as, as well uh, that are coming to the surface about we're seeing maybe something new? That's sort of a half-formed thought, but it, it's long interested me, this sort of neoliberalization of bodies. And I'm wondering how you see that uh, in our current moment and if that brought anything to light for you. I see those bodies as well, sort of the bodies that have not um, contorted themselves um, into the project of, of neoliberalism of, as now being reappropriated as projects of neoliberalism, which is to say, if you look at the Kardashians, they're trying to um, recreate the thick body 
um, <laughs> the body that's not exactly, um, you know, whipped into a certain kind of shape in an obvious way, but is, is trying to affect a version of, um, of thickness of, of having fat on the body. Um, <laughs> that, you know, is, is a, a common aesthetic in, in, in black communities in the U S particularly, but, but, and elsewhere. Um, it's interesting because I think, you know, even Beyonce admits to going on these extreme diets to go on, on tour and to do her homecoming video and present herself to the public after having a baby. Um, and we see this as this kind of, people kind of see this as this inspiring thing. Like I can work myself to the bone and I'll admit myself that, you know, I think, I think particularly speaking as a woman, you can, you recognize the ways and you, and sometimes you can even fall in depending on who you are and depending on your culture. Um, you can be lured by certain expectations of, of body discipline biopolitics of of efficiency um of of appearing um unmaimed of appearing um not de not de debilitated in the least but exercised worked um perfected uh it's yeah even for me these are very half-formed thoughts as well and i think looking at them specifically in terms of blackness, um, there, there's a lot at play there, specifically the ways in which fatness has been demonized, particularly in, in these ways amongst black people, um, or even not fatness, simply um, not having a, a body that can be um, easily fetishized or remarked upon for its shapes alone. Um, you know, the, the kind of stigma of having a flat ass as a black woman or, what have you. Um, I think, you know, I, I used to joke with a friend that in school, you know, in, in grade school, you know, the, the most average looking uh, white girls, you know, were constantly dating and you could be like a, a very kind of beautiful, you know, black or Latinx woman um, and being seen as completely um, undesirable by not only white people but by people of color um and so that ingrains something in you about what uh, about um these forms of perfectionism within athletics within performance and how they expand to a wider community and if you look at yeah someone like cardi b and how um the the kind of uh a kind of, you could say, working class performance of the body um, in, in stripping, um, and not in the ways that it's been hyper-commercialized in the mainstream, um, but, you know, in the club, um, that uh, the idea of what um, an attractive body is in that space is, is quite at odds with what it is on Instagram. And so in a way, the ways in which body Cardi B's body has changed um, speak to, 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 I think, speak to the thing that we're both having trouble speaking about. Um, all of the kind of surgical enhancements and changes um, and reductions. Um, and then if you compare that to what 
with what, you know, Kylie Jenner has done with her body. Um, yeah, there are these interesting ways in which we're converging on this kind of bizarre, I mean, I would, this, I guess, kind of, you know, Nefertiti-esque figure, <laughs> um, a fantasy version of, of a kind of um, idealized uh, non-Western body um, and how that plays into, into Western gazes um, and Western forms of production. Yeah, it's, it, it makes sense because this is, a, this is an economy of extraction. So of course, um, not only is it going to extract um, minerals and, and labor, um, it's also going to extract bodies. It's going to extract aesthetics, images, um, and then sell them back to the people, um, both people who are in the ruling classes as well as you know the rest of us. Do you see something more Marxian in our discussion here where Marx has the concept of surplus value, right? Where the worker produces more than they earn and that surplus goes to the boss. When we look at the, the, the beauty of uh, a, a Beyonce or a Jamila Jamil or this line of Madam Walker products, do you see this sort of like we would see a stolen wage from the worker, sort of a stolen beauty from many black or brown women who, because their lives are about giving up this surplus, um, that beauty is going to a select few people because of some of these complicated mechanisms of biopolitics we talked about, where to make your body, be it a Beyonce or a Cardi B or a, a Kylie Jenner, I should say, you have to spend thousands, if not millions of dollars. So could you talk about this link I've teased out if you see this connection between the stolen wage of the worker and the stolen beauty of many people, black, brown, and, and white, or whatever background? Yeah, I one thing that immediately popped into mind was, you know, just the selling of, of weaves, how, how weaves are begotten um, and who, who they're gotten from. And I think this is a very... Um, sensitive subject am amongst black women, but I think, you know, all sorts of people, you know, white women wear weaves too, and especially um, ones in the public eye, and it's just been obscured because it's um, seen as their natural hair and their natural texture. Um, but that you have, um, you know, mostly Indian women selling their hair, um, you know, for, to, to produce um, this kind of celebrity, to produce this image of beauty. Um, and then in another way, and then you have it reproduced through the ways in which black women's bodies um, are um, again, kind of sold off in, in, in terms of image um, and reproduced on white bodies like Kylie Jenner's body. Um, and so, yes, I think you could, you could in a way speak to surplus value, but I also, I think we have to think about the ways in which, you know, black capitalists in a, in a certain way themselves uh, capitalize off of this kind of buying and selling and this kind of exploitation um, for, for reasons that they justify for themselves. Or I didn't get to, I didn't actually address um, LeBron James directly, but, you know, to, to work, um, to be a, to be a basketball player, to be within the NBA means that you're, 
you're facing actually a, an extreme um, exploitation just relative to how much these um, team owners are making off of your back, making off of um, your debilitation over time. Um, same with football. Football's an even more extreme example. So even though these players are rich, um, even <laughs> to sit on the bench, um, they make a million dollars a year. Um, there are own, literally owners um, who uh, stand to gain uh, in the billions um, off of your work, off of your labor, off of your performance. Um, or even if you look at um, Beyonce, I mean, Beyonce and Jay-Z, their whole thing is they want to capitalize off of their labor um, and uh, have other work and to, to then in turn exploit other workers who want to have access, who want to have proximity to them um, instead of be themselves exploited by, you know, these huge institutions. Um, and so you see, you know, Jay-Z partnering with the NFL um, and kind of justifying his partnership with them and saying, the only way you're going to be able to do anything or have any effect is if you team up with the oppressors um, because they have the influence, they have the money. Um, and so the ways that that, I think, you know, Marx, a lot of, there's a lot of criticism of Marx because he, um, because a lot of people feel like he didn't foresee a lot, but I think some, someone like Mike Davis speaks really well to what, um, you know, Marx didn't have the chance to pontificate on or to write a tome about, but he did um, understand the fundamentals of a lot of these interactions, especially gendered ones, um, that I think we, that um, there's some great additions onto, onto Marxism by feminists, by people like Silvia Federici, um, in terms of um, domestic labor. Um, but I think that there's there's precedent in Marx in how we look at um, gendered types of labor, racialized types of labor, the complicated and myriad ways in which they're produced. If you look at even the, you know, someone like Beyonce, someone like Kylie Jenner, um, and even like someone, some, someone like Cardi B, um, they're pulling from a culture of uh, um, sex work amongst black women, amongst um, South Asian women, um, the, the glamour and the different, the, the biopolitics of those positions have been glamorized um, by, uh, and, not, and not just someone like Cardi B, but you know, Lil' Kim, uh, the authenticity, so to speak, that was brought into hip hop when women insisted on um, uh, being part of the mainstream when women fought their way into being these major figures in hip hop, um, something that they brought into it were the parts, the sexualized aspects of black um, female existence that had been sort of written off as dirty, as wrong, um, as degrading the race. Um, so there are multiple complications there in which on one hand, you want you want to be able to celebrate um, those expressions of, of sexuality, those expressions of, of bodily autonomy. But then I think also you have to question, um, is it autonomous under this system, under capitalism? Uh, and 
if the question is no, if the answer is no, how do we talk about it? How do we understand it? And what would be the alternative under an alternative um, economic system under a different system? Um, how could um, these relations be transformed, disrupted, changed, broken down, abolished, whatever? Um, it's it becomes complicated because they're so wrapped up um, in people making making something out of destructive histories, um, destructive pasts. Uh, I think you know someone like Sadia Hartman is, is is great to read on this because she I think she has a very generative way of thinking through these questions that doesn't discount the parts of them that. Um, are seedier, that are difficult, that are harder to celebrate. You you wrote about uh, ballroom dancing and the uh, sort of co-optation of that by celebrities. So ballroom, which which if you could explain, uh, comes from uh, queer communities in New York City. And if you could give a bit of background of that in your answer. And so you wrote about Rosario uh, Dawson and uh, Jamila Jamil, who um, uh, I find to be political ciphers who are incredibly damaging to real progress, and maybe we can explain why if you concur. So your quote goes, Rich, pretty people suffer too, but Jamil isn't criticized simply because her illnesses and sexual identity are illegible to the public, but because she, like many other social media influencers, has fashioned surface-level advocacy into a lucrative brand. Queer, sick or not, both Jamil's and Dawson's positions lack the integrity of sustained political commitments by activists who have risked both their incomes and personal safety, not simply to have the right views, but to do the right thing. Um... So for movements like Ballroom, how do celebrities um, at seemingly co-opt or even blunt the radical potential of these movements? And I guess to, to complicate that with maybe a more queer-oriented question, why do we sometimes see this where we have to put these celebrities who are very much uh, fixated within the male gaze within these movements to draw attention? Um, does that then draw attention away to the many bodies who don't fit sort of the patriarchal male gaze equivalent of beauty, does that push them back into the background right at the moment where the movement seemingly is having success of gaining recognition? An interesting thing to think about when we talk about, you know, ballroom, which is to say balls were built out of having nothing, out of being cast out um, of your home, um, out of um, being cast out of society, out of not being able to get a job um, because you could not assimilate, because you could not pr present as straight, as cis. Um, um, making a place for yourself um, and then being taken care of in a community um, that was willing to challenge you as much as it was, as, as it was um, willing to to protect you and to lift you up. So the, the whole, the history and the whole, the entire meaning of ballroom culture, to me, it, it is, is antithetical to, to um, a reality TV show. Um, of course, it, it's, a, it's one of these situations where if what we're looking for, you know, as, queer people um, specifically is um, representation 
um, then the whole point is that you're going to make compromises, right? Um, and I think it's difficult because I think, you know, for a lot of people, um, especially if you're not, if you aren't in the ball community and you're just an observer or someone like me, um, it's easy to kind of think, well, I want these people to have recognition. I want, you know, a part of what I see as my community or that I, a, a, a history that made it possible for me to exist as who I am in the world. I want them to have legitimacy in the mainstream. Um, it, it kind of allows for um, the Jamila Jamils and the Rosario Dawson's of the world um, to, to have success in their kind of opportunism and, and racketeering of sorts. Um, because, you know, that's kind of where ally, um, the, the whole ally, the idea of allyship comes from is that we need to have legitimacy conferred upon us by sympathetic people because we want to get married, because um, we want to be able to adopt children, because we want to be able to get a job at a corporate law firm. Um, so it's, it's difficult to even talk about this, this ballroom show, because I think in a way being upset about it almost legitimizes its very premise. Um, but, you know, to humor the people who certainly will benefit, you know, from, not simply to humor them, but to, to, to speak to the, to the young people or, you know, the trans kids and adults who will certainly feel personal, um, not all, but I'm, I'm certain that some, some people out there who are isolated from any um, tangible form of community will find this kind of representation important or, or, or will give them some kind of will. Um, I think the danger there um, is that we tell people that they need um, power conferred upon them and that... Um, there's no need to fight for it on their own or the Jamila Jamils will tweet about you and they'll post Instagrams about you um, and they'll make you important and they'll make you feel real and they'll make you feel good. And so that's who um, you need to look for to, or, or even um, that the trans people, that the queer people you need to look up to are the ones who have gained legitimacy and fame in the system. All of those things I think are troublesome ideas because um, they actually, they make, they make the, the very um, community of ball, ballroom culture, um, they render it um, impossible for certain people, right? Um, the idea that you would have to pull something together out of nothing, that you'd have to make a scrappy community um, that no one but the people you knew and already cared about recognized, um, I think is, is an impossible idea to, to people because um, we've turned a lot of these struggles into purely this idea of representation, politics, assimilation into neoliberal um, status um, instead of about creating a new world, um, instead of about changing what the world is. So 
it's kind of a minefield of a conversation, even the re- the revelation that um, RuPaul is uh, is fracking. Fracking, yeah. Get it, get it, girl. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like, well, there you go. Um, that's what this produces. It it it'll, it, it creates a pathway for um, anybody if they want to um, to become the oppressor. Um, and I don't think that's what we should be telling young people um, is the North Star, um, the whole It Gets Better campaign. That's what it represents. It represents RuPaul fracking, I think. <laughs>